and welcome to episode 17 of the Tech Done Right podcast, table exercise podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. If you like the podcast and would like to encourage us to continue, please follow us on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews really do help new listeners find our show and we really appreciate them. You can also leave comments on our site, techdoneright.io, and read our blog at medium.com slash tablexi. That's with a hyphen, table hyphen xi. Thanks. Hey, before we start, a quick message from Ruby Central. Ruby Central has asked me to remind you about this year's RubyConf and the Opportunity Scholar and Guide program. RubyConf offers a limited number of scholarships for people who might otherwise not be able to attend the conference, and they also look for volunteers to help guide the scholars during the conference. I've acted as a guide at this conference for the last few years. It's a great way to enjoy the conference and also improve the experience of new people entering the Ruby community. RubyConf is November 15th through 17th in New Orleans. For more information on being a scholar or volunteering as a guide, visit rubyconf.org slash scholarships. Applications are due by August 25th, 2017. Thanks. Today on the show, we have Corey Haynes. Corey is a longtime member of the Ruby community, the creator of Code Retreats, and the author of the book, Four Rules of Simple Design. Corey is currently the CTO of Harkin, a company that allows news organizations to engage with their audience. Harkin's written using Elm, a pure functional front-end language and framework that's a replacement for React Redux or Vue or the like. Uh, we talk about what the Elm language is, why Harkin chose to use it, and why they're really happy with it. And I hope you like it. I've been super interested in using Elm recently. I, I took it up uh, as a test challenge and um, have been really trying to work with it more and was super excited to talk to Corey about it. So I hope you enjoy our conversation, and here we go. Corey, you want to tell everybody who you are? Hi. Well, I'm Corey. I am currently the CTO co-founder of a company here in Chicago called Harkin. Um, I'm a software developer at heart. Um, I was actually just writing some <laughs> Rails code before we started this. Yeah, and I love cats. That probably sums me up. <laughs> Many of you may know Corey as a person who started the idea of Code Retreat. So Corey, we're here to talk about Harkin and Elm programming language, which they're using in Harkin to build Harkin. Uh, so maybe you could start by telling us exactly what Harkin does, and we'll, let's start from there. Sure. Harkin itself means to listen, and we work with newsrooms around the world to help them better listen to their audience prior to doing all the work around uh, reporting. So at the abstract, the kind of idea is to help newsrooms with techniques to give their audience a seat at the editorial table. So all the way from sort of the pitch process of what possible stories we could do all the way through figuring out which stories are the ones that the reporters should be spending their time on. And then through transparency during the reporting process all the way leading up to publication. So while there's a lot of tools out there for sort of tracking what the audience has gone and read, which is sort of post-publication, we really work with them and we consult with them and give them best practices and then supporting technology for those best practices to work with your audience prior to publication and prior to doing all of the work. And our goal is, is really to open up the newsroom, increase transparency, and via increased transparency, increase the trust that the audience in the newsroom has. And how long have you been working on, how long have you been building the app? Jennifer Brandel, who's my co-founder, and I started Harkin at the beginning of 2015. Um, she had been working at the local public radio station here in Chicago, WBEZ, 
and had spent a, a couple years creating a series called Curious City, which was the sort of breeding ground for a lot of the initial ideas around Harkin. And we've then, over the last two and a half years, expanded our best practices, brought on other newsrooms, helped them, consulted with them. Cool. And the front end of the site is built in Elm. Yeah. So half of it, we've been working in Elm for a little over a year now. So we're, we have a, a one product and one big section of the system that is entirely Elm. We started building that a little over a year ago. And then the other part, the old sort of the old standby part of the system, uh, has a very, very raw jQuery JavaScript front end with some libraries that we wrote. And we are rolling Elm back through that as we update functionality. We're just replacing pages with Elm. So I don't know how many people listening to this are going to be familiar with Elm. So we can, I want to talk about Elm because I've gotten super curious about it lately. Actually, it started when you told me that that was what you were using at Harkin was one of the first things that got me really curious about it. So let's start with Elm is a, first of all, a front-end language that compiles down to JavaScript. Mm-hmm. And you can go from there. Yeah, so it is a pure functional, it's an ML language. I, I like to say it's Haskell without the academia. Actually, the compiler's written in Haskell, I think. Yeah, the <laughs> compiler itself is written in Haskell. So by pure functional, that means that all of your interaction with Elm takes place in functions. There's it's not an object-oriented programming language where you have objects that have methods. What you have are functions that take in values and return a value, and it's immutable. The The values are immutable, correct? Yeah, and so there's there's always this little discussion about what it actually means to be pure functional and whether or not the definition is that you have higher-order functions or that you separate your data from your functions or that all of your functions are pure, meaning they have no side effects, Um, whether data is immutable. It always ends up in the big discussion about what that pure functional means. But from an Elm perspective, everything is based on around functions. And you'd like you said, you pass data in a function can't mutate the data. It actually has to create new. If it needs to return something new, it has to create that a new, new data and send it back. A new string or a new record or something like that. The thing for me that is really, really great about it is part of that immutability and sort of augmenting it is this idea that Elm is very strict about the functions not having side effects, meaning like if you call a function with a given set of parameters and given set of inputs, you know that you're always going to get the same output. So it's not going to change the world around you. It's not going to change some state somewhere, which makes it interesting because it it you can't have a function that like returns the current time for example because that function has a side effect meaning it actually grabs the time from the world around it so you can't be guaranteed that a given input is the output yeah it's maybe not so much a side effect as it is that it it's not a guarantee you can't guarantee the value yeah, yeah. I think of both input and output yeah. side so, effects. Yeah, right, okay. As so to me a side effect is anything that interacts with with the world okay. with the world around it. So but that's a really good clarification because if you think about returning the time, most of the time we do think about side effects as something that changes the world versus just interacts with the world. So there there are two other features about Elm that I want to just talk about 
quickly before we start talking about why you wanted to use it. One of which is that relative to many of the scripting languages that people listening to this might be familiar with, Elm is also very uh, strictly typed mm-hmm. and has, has a somewhat, well, it's not unique, but if you're used to Ruby and JavaScript, a, a somewhat different approach to how you how you define types and, and how strict the type is, along with a, a compiler that gives pretty detailed error messages if you step aside from it. Yeah, and it's it's sort of it's in that ML family. And if you are coming from something like a JavaScript or a Ruby or even like a C sharp or Java, you tend to think in, of types in terms of the sort of template for a object. Either it's your classes or you tend to think in types as the noun, sort of these are the things that I work with are my types. Whereas in these sorts of type systems, oftentimes I think of the types as more, they're the things, but they also have the representation of sort of the state around the thing as well. So the there's this idea of what a type constructor looks like in one of these type systems, where the type constructor is actually more representing the state of the thing rather than the thing itself. That that actually doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. Let me give you an example. For example, one of the types that we have in our system, and this is a, a very common problem, is when you're editing something. So on a web page, you might have a piece of text, and when you click on it, you want to turn it into an input box. You want to have a buffer so that while they're typing it in, you could cancel it and get back to the original value. So this is a, a common situation that you have when you um, have a UI. And what we've built is a type called editable. And what its aim is, is to counter that pro- that case where you might have something that is not being edited, but still has a buffer. For example, the way you might model this ordinarily is you would have a Boolean that says whether you're editing or not. You would have the value of the thing. And then you would have the buffer, which is this of the same type. It might be a string or something. And as you're editing, you'd alter that buffer. And then when you want to save it, you would copy the buffer over into the value. Well, you can get into a weird situation where your Boolean that specifies if you're editing is set to false saying, I'm not editing, but you still have data in the buffer. And this is a weird like kind of a, a an inconsistent situation. It's an inconsistent state for your application. If you are not editing, you should not have a buffer. So you can create a type. In our system, it's called editable. And it actually has two constructors for it. One, you can construct something of this type by just saying not editable and give it a value or not editing and give it a value. And at that time, your thing itself, your data is in this state of not editing. And then when you want to switch into editing, you can create sort of an instance of this type or create the data as another constructor called editing, where you have both the value and the buffer. And so these states can bounce back and forth. And when your data is in the not editing state, there's literally not a buffer variable at all. So you're actually in the situation where the type system is enforcing your business logic. Yeah. And that's one of the things I really love about it. There's this concept called make impossible states impossible. And the idea is that you can build your type system so that literally your 
application cannot get into an inconsistent state. It's much, much easier in a in an OO language like Ruby or whatever JavaScript is to have a bunch of different sort of flags or different things and, and then have it be very easy to set any combination of those flags, whether or not they're logical or not. But in Elm, it's much more straightforward to have the type system and the compiler verify for you the legal states of the application. Is that yeah, you know, it's important to realize that none of this stuff is impossible to do in an OO language. You can build your system, and if you build a like a really good kind of pure OO-ish, everything's encapsulated, um, you don't leak internal state to other objects, things like that, you can build systems that literally can't be in an invalid state. But it's a lot more complicated when you you have to enforce that and you have to put the logic around it. Whereas in a really sort of expansive type system like Elms, you can encode it, like literally encode it into the types themselves. It's a much more simplistic way to look at it or a simpler way to look at it, at least for me. One of the things that has struck me about Elm relative to some of the other JavaScript tools is that it, the Elm code, and I, I haven't done a whole lot with it yet, but the Elm code seems to have a whole lot less incidental complexity compared to some of the JavaScript frameworks. Yeah. You, you, know, you, you are much closer to working with the logic itself and not a bunch of sort of yak shaves that you need to do to get the tool to be aware of where your logic begins and ends. I was thinking about it the other day, and I kind of went on a, a Twitter tirade maybe a couple months ago, about how the more that I build systems like in Elm and some other, and and kind of fool around with these heavily, um, these, these more sort of expansive type systems, is that it's more complicated. Like you're saying, it is, it's just plain harder to build a really safe system in a language like JavaScript, say. JavaScript is such a free form, like you can do anything you want, practically. It doesn't seem like it has a lot of constraints. And because of that, you know, you have to really do a lot of work to be safe. You're trading flexibility for safety, which is sometimes the right thing to do. Like it's sometimes a perfectly valid way to go. I'm not sure anymore. That's the thing. <laughs> it's like, like I've said that and I've thought about all of those things. And then I realized... I build web forms. Like I build web, you know, I build websites. And most of the people I know and most of the people that most, honestly, I'll say most people out there are building like business applications. And they're almost always, you know, slightly more complicated, but effectively CRUD apps. Like there's some business logic in there and things. But if you really sit down to it, like I have some complicated stuff you know, I wrote a little fraud detection subsystem in our app, but it was for the most part kind of a crud system. And I think I'm coming to the conclusion that we we keep fooling ourselves into thinking that we need a lot more power because like when I'm working in Elm, it feels like I've got the guardrails up at a bowling alley mm -hmm. and I'm throwing the ball down the, what is it? The lane, the bowling lane, and it's <laughs> bouncing off the uh, little rubber things and then gets down and hits, gets me a strike. And like more and more, I don't want to have to worry about the complexity that comes with more power. Like I want my, I'm, I'm really enjoying when my language just basically says, I'm not even going to let you do that because that, that is dangerous or it doesn't make sense. 
You know, one of the things that was striking to me, my first experience with stricter type languages was really my first experience with a, a really powerful programming language at all was Pascal and then later Java, which is nominally strictly typed. And in those languages, the type system often like just really gets in your way. Like it doesn't necessarily give you the guardrails. It just is there to make the compiler happy. At least that's the way it often felt. And with Elm, in part, because I think the compiler is really, really good at telling you what the problem is when it can't compile, like you really do feel like the type system is there to enforce safety and make impossible things impossible. Yeah, and the kind of anecdote I tell is I used to do C-sharp. I did C-sharp from like 2001 to 2008 or so. And around 2007, 2008, I was shifting over into Ruby, and I loved the freedom that came with um, sort of the duck typing and and a, a much more loose language. And I still, like, Ruby still is the language that I go to for a lot of my coding. And I remember at a conference, I was at the CodeMash conference and, you know, late night hanging out with people. And we were talking, I was talking about going to Ruby and we were talking about the types in C Sharp and that how the types worked in Ruby and all of this stuff and how, how it was so much better and that the types were getting in my way in C Sharp, which they were. And a friend of mine, I think it was Eric Smith, I'm not 100% sure. He just looks at me and he goes, you don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, okay, really? Like, and he said, let me show you a type system. And he sat me down and brought up some F sharp code. F sharp is another pure functional language yes. in like the Haskell ML. Yeah. Yeah. That, that kind of very intelligent type system corner of the world. Yeah. And he showed me some of the things you can do. And I was like, Oh, Oh, I like, I understand now that it's not a, it's not really static versus weak or strong versus dynamic and all of that. It's, it's really, do you have a type system that lets you do things in it? Or do you have a type system that is simply there to say, this is a noun? Yeah. Is it, is the type system simply there so that the compiler can work? Yeah. You, is it part of the inner, your interface to the programming language? Yeah. And like, you can't, using like when you move into a type system that actually has a few more features around it where you can encode state, you know, different states and things like that into it, it becomes a part of the programming thought process. And part of your design process is thinking about the states that your type can be in and encoding those into your type constructors. So specifically, just to get, make this a little bit more concrete, specifically in the case of Alm, uh, a couple of the things that lets you do is you have, what C++ would refer to as template types and what Java would call generics, where you could say, like, this is a list of X, as you can declare something to be a list of X, where X is specified whenever you actually instantiate uh, one of those lists. And then also in Elm, you can create types that are uh, the unions of multiple different types. So so a really common one in Elm is a maybe type, uh, which is either null or just a value. That's actually the keyword it uses, just the value. But the, the maybe type is the union of those two types. And, and there's another one where there's... Yeah, there's just common, yeah. one thing real quick. Those It's not actually the union of those types. The nothing and the just something are the type constructors. So those actually construct, both of those are of type maybe. And so the, what a union type is, is it says I've got a type and there are 
several ways that you can construct effectively an instance of this type, either by just saying nothing and using that's effectively a parameterless type constructor or just and give it a value. And that's a, a type, that's a, a constructor that takes one value to it. Both of those return you something of type maybe. Okay. Yes. That's a, a more accurate way of putting it. That's the kind of thing we're talking about when we say that the, the type system in Elm is more intelligent. It, it gives you the opportunity to create your own types in a way that lets you specify the valid and invalid states of the system. Yeah, like that editable or one of the common ones is a thing called remote data where you can actually have your thing be either not asked or it's loading or it's loaded or it's error when loaded. And so using the these type constructors you can use them to encode the different states of your type. Right. And then it's relatively easy to have the program switch based on the the state of that type and and handle a remote data differently if it's loading versus if it's already in place. Exactly. Because it's really easy. You just use pattern matching to figure out what constructor you use to create it and thus what state you're in. Right. And then you can easily grab the, the, the piece of data that's there. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing about Elm is that it's not just a language, it's also a web framework. So it also has its own MVC model view controller structure uh, and its own way of responding to events that happen and using that to change state and re-update the web page. You want to talk about how that works a little bit? Yeah, so Elm does have the language part of it, and then it also is sort of the runtime, and it handles... My understanding is that Redux is based on the Elm architecture. Yeah, but it's a lot more complex. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 not as tightly coupled to everything. And so what the Elm runtime does is it puts you into this sort of update view loop. It handles uh, virtual DOM and the virtual DOM diffing. And it handles all of the what are called managed side effects in Elm. And so it's responsible for when somebody clicks on a button, it captures that and you define to it what messaging you want Elm to send to you when that happens. And so it handles this loop. It calls your update method with sort of the current state of your system, gets the current state back from you, handles any side effect producing things that you need to do. If you have a language that has no side effects, like seriously, absolutely no side effects, then there's nothing it can really do except basic calculations. And so you need a sort of a a wrapping framework that can handle any of the side effects that you need to do. So for example, one of the big side effects is making HTTP calls. And so you don't actually, in your Elm code, make an HTTP call. What you do is you define an HTTP call and you return it back to the Elm runtime. And the Elm runtime knows how to interpret that and make the HTTP call. And then when the result comes back, you give it a function that it will then call. And so it then knows how to send the results back to you. Um, Another common example is I, I sort of frame it in this way. Other people frame it in different ways, but I frame it as Elm has no actual JavaScript interop story, meaning you don't have JavaScript interop. 
You can't just call a JavaScript function. What you have to do is you treat it similarly to how you would make an HTTP call in that you set up a definition of what it means to call the JavaScript function, and then you return that back to the Elm runtime, and it calls it. So you can't, like, call a JavaScript function and get a return value from it. It's impossible to do in Elm. What you do is you say, like, I'm going to get this wrong, but in practice what happens is you set up these different messages that the Elm runtime knows how to handle, define how to handle. And like one of those messages is I'd like to make a call to this external resource, HTTP or JavaScript opt. And another one is I've received data from this and do something with it. Effectively. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, I haven't really done very much with it. Uh, definition. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice because what it does is it allows you to make like every single one of your functions in Elm is pure. It will return the same value for the given inputs and so by just returning sort of definitions or saying like, here's, here's all of the information about the HTTP request that I, that you need to know in order to make it. And the, the interesting thing is that the JavaScript being the way that you call a JavaScript function, for example, is you don't actually call a JavaScript function. You create what's called a port in your Elm code. And that port Elm can trigger that port. It can call out to that port. You define it and say, I want you to call out to this port, and then you give it back to the Elm runtime. Whether or not a JavaScript function gets called is entirely incumbent on the JavaScript, <laughs> on your JavaScript. Like, you have to set up to listen to that port. So it's not even that you are defining a JavaScript function that you want to let L, the Elm runtime call, you're simply saying, here is sort of an opening in the safe box that Elm has constructed for me. And some external system might be listening to it. Usually it's, it's a JavaScript subscribes to that. What made you decide that Elm was the solution to the problem you had? Like, let's start with like, what made you decide to go with it? In the first place? Last year, we were starting work on this new product, and we wanted it to be very client-side interactive. And our existing system has some interactions. It's It's got a overlay library we built and, and some stuff around that, and it does some Ajax calls. But because none of my team, there's three of us on my dev team, none of us really want to write JavaScript. Um, just our personal preference. We don't really like writing JavaScript. And so because of that, we didn't do a lot of it. And when we were going to build this new one, I, I wanted us to have a really uh, rich client-side interaction story. And so we were kind of looking out at what options were. And we looked at ClojureScript, or we, 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 we had kind of put that on the board. ClojureScript is one possibility. I had maybe two, two and a half years ago, I had gone through the Pragmatic Studios Elm video course. Yep. Just, it was an introduction to Elm uh, back then and was really intrigued. That this, this was an older version of Elm and yeah, had looked at them and some of the defining things that we wanted to make sure is we didn't actually want to write in a language that still had to use a like JavaScript ecosystem framework, like React or an Angular or something. So we didn't want to just say, oh, let's do CoffeeScript or P 
pure script or one of these that still sort of resided in that ecosystem because you wanted to opt out of the entire ecosystem. Exactly. Exactly. And Elm and ClojureScript were kind of the two big ones that we looked at briefly. We briefly looked at ClojureScript, but I had a little bit of experience in Elm and had, and really liked it and liked a lot of the philosophy around it. And so we kind of all shifted over to Elm. We worked for about six weeks with Eighth Light and they worked with us on a lot of the initial Elm stuff. They were kind of learning Elm too. And we just sort of dove in and <laughs> went all in on it. You're still excited about it. So I gather it's overall going well, but what kind of, what, what have been issues? What are some of the things that if somebody was looking to switch to Elm or start using Elm, what are some of the things they should look out for? Well, if you are shifting over, so it's going spectacularly. We love it. And we're, you know, never looking back. We're expanding it to basically everything we do on the front end is now in Elm. Some, it, it's got to learn. If you're coming straight from an OO language and you don't have a lot of experience with functional languages, there's, there's a couple places in our system where we kind of made a, a couple bad design decisions around trying to make things too generic and ended up there's one part of our system, this one piece, which effectively tried to shoehorn an object into this system. So it's got functions. So it's sort of in caps. It's, it's, it's a record that it contains the data and the functions to operate on the data, which mm-hmm. at the time seems like a pretty good way to make a generic thing. In the end, it has caused us just tremendous pain. So I think it's less about Elm and more about the learning curve of the sort of the unlearning curve of some of the habits wanting to come in, especially if you're coming from an existing kind of JavaScript framework. So if you are coming in from React or or something, a, a common question that comes up in the Elm Slack is... Uh, the idea of how do I build a component? How do I build a component that that encapsulates its own state? And it's shifting over into this thought of like everything's just a function. There are patterns that we use. There's design patterns around the functions, but the things that you do normally in an other in an OO language don't translate as nicely. You don't really have components in the same way. You have state, and you have functions that turn that state into DOM elements. Yeah. It's easy to think in terms of components of like, oh, well, I have this reusable calendar widget. And it's like, well, you, you kind of, what you have is you have a reusable set of functions that know how to build the HTML for a calendar. And that set of reusable functions may be associated with a set, with a standard set of data that they need. Have there been limitations, technical limitations, things that you wanted to try and do that were either very hard or or, or not possible given the state of the ecosystem or things that you needed to build that you wouldn't have had to build in other tools? In our, like we, we do use a, a WYSIWYG JavaScript library, a WYSIWYG editor, and it was a bit complicated to interact with it or interface with it. And so there's not a lot of like, of things like that. But we've never been big on pulling a lot of those things in. There's, oh, um, there's no binary data type, which makes uploading and file manipulation cumbersome at best. 
And so uh, we have in our system, we have situations where we want to upload images and we run into some problems around that. We've, we've, We've been able to occasionally work around with it by, um, I don't even know what the term is, switching it over into its data URL representation, um, which is then just a string of uh, characters. But that's that's kind of hack. It, it feels very hacky. So we've had to, when we are doing image uploading, we've had to work around a few things and jump out into the JavaScript side um, to do some of the stuff there. Um, how hard has it been to work with styling or work with designers? Um, I know that one of the things about Elm is that, that it generates HTML from not, it doesn't use templates. The, the framework doesn't use templates by default. Everything, the HTML is generated from functions. Has that been a problem? Do you have non-technical designers on the project? Um, no, we have our designer. He's sort of our designer front end dev and he writes Elm. Like it, it was, just a matter of like if the, if if you have somebody who writes like ERB yeah and can do things like if statements and you take a little bit of the time you can teach them to write elm because it's elm the, writing elm's html generation looks a lot to me like hamel yeah it does it's it's, it's a lot a lot like markaby if you want to pull back a little bit from a deep cut ruby <laughs> It's like writing Hamel, but a little bit stricter. <laughs> yeah, and you get um, you have a function called div, and it takes an, it takes a list of attributes and then a list of child elements. And so it it if you just treat it that way, then it's fairly straightforward to write, and you then you get the full power of an actual you know a, a programming language like Elm and the safety and the type safety and stuff like that. Yeah, I haven't really, I mean, our, our designer codes. And so he has jumped in. There are certain parts of the system that are a little bit, I don't want to say advanced is maybe like esoteric type things that we do in the system that he doesn't quite get yet. He doesn't work in that part of the system that often. So jumping into it, it's, it can be confusing. So that's when, you know, it's like, oh, well, let's work on that together or let's jump on a screen hero call real quick. But he he does it just fine. Like, he, he cranks it out. And we do a combination of straight-up CSS and then we just add class names to our elements, just like you would in anything else. But we also, there's a uh, library called Elm CSS that has a uh, effectively a type-safe way to generate CSS. And so we do that. We use Elm on our new uh, embed modules, things that get embedded onto our client sites. So there's small little uh, forms that sit on our clients' websites, and that's the new ones are written in Elm. And we generate the CSS and shove it onto the page um, using this library. So I haven't found the other, the nice thing too is that you can, when we started, we just were straight up using classes. We wrote SAS and everything just worked fine. So if you have a non technical or a non developer designer, they should be able to just work the same way as normal. What's the community like, the Elm language community? Um, I find it incredibly friendly and incredibly helpful. Um, there's the Elm Slack 
which there's so many people there who are both in the beginners and the general channel that are constantly answering questions and discussing things. There's very little pushback for new people coming in. And it's since it is a, a somewhat new and small community, everyone's just happy that people come in. It's, it's interesting because you have sort of two funnels in one from the Haskell side and one from the JavaScript side. And they're, their backgrounds and perspectives are usually so different that a lot of the questions that come in are really, really different. Like the, the people who come in from the JavaScript side are, you know, it seems like at least once a week, somebody's asking about components and how do you build components? And then on the Haskell side, people come in and then are generally complaining about the type system <laughs> because it's not, it, it's missing some things that the Haskell type system has that, Haskell makes extensive use of like type classes. And so it comes in and, and we need, how come Elm doesn't have type classes? We need type classes. But it's almost always, especially in the Elm Slack, I don't spend a lot of time on the mailing list, but in the Elm Slack, it's always a friendly environment and a sort of a friendly atmosphere there of people answering questions. Where would you recommend that somebody get started if they wanted to start picking up Elm and using it? Well, if you go up to elmlang, so elm-lang.org, there is a guide, introduction to elm. It's, it's guide.elm-lang.org. And it's a quick, like kind of walks you through building um, some of the basic stuff. And then go through that. Definitely go to the Elm tech slack. Go to, there's one, if you go into the Elm Slack, if you go through the guide, that's what everyone's going to point you to first is the guide. And then ask questions. A lot of people, while they're going through the guide, will ask questions in the Slack, and that's where people answer them. And then there's a whole range. That leads you then to people will suggest stuff in the Slack. I like the Pragmatic Studio um, videos, but there's lots of people now doing some introduction videos and sort of how to do this and that. There's a remote meetup that happens time to time. And there's a few of those. And there's some interesting just talks from people about stuff they're doing. But the, the language site is a good place to start. What haven't I asked you? Like, what, what do you want people to know about Elm or working with Elm? I think the big thing is that if you are coming from like a JavaScript background to come in very, very open mind, like sort of take on that proverbial beginner's mind and come in, go pretend that you like know absolutely nothing and then just start building up and not come into it saying like, how do I do X? Because that's what I do in JavaScript or in another language. And instead come in and say, how does Elm do it? So what's kind of funny is to a certain extent, this is how I came into it. Like I started playing with it because I was evaluating the code example problem that we give to uh, prospective hire candidates at Table XI. And I was trying to evaluate how hard it was for a novice. And I thought that it wouldn't be fair to compare how I would do it in Rails. So I thought I will do it in Elm, a language I do not know. And that will give me a sense of how complicated and how long I might expect a novice to take on this. And with Rails 5.1 and Webpacker, like it's super easy. Elm is a privileged language in Webpacker. Rails 5.1 gives you a default Elm setup out of the box if you want it. I did hear that. I did. Yeah, I did. I've seen people talk about that. Yeah, it's super nice. You just, you Webpack install and 
basically it's there. You can start writing Elm in the framework. It gives you the, the framework skeleton uh, and you just go. And I expected to be a little skeptical because of the type thing, but the more I used it, the more fun I was having doing it. And, and the more I f- felt like the, the absence of the kind of incidental complexity that I get when I try to do VJS or the other JavaScript frameworks. Um, and I was really, really uh, was able to do it without a whole lot of frustration, especially for a language that I hadn't really touched before. And yeah, that was how I got into it. Yeah. And it's just, it's a really like, you have a good point. I, it reminds me of when I started doing Ruby and like the joy that I had when I would write Ruby. And I still like for the last week or so, I've been back building some stuff in both in, in our rails app. And I love, like, I love rails. I love working in it. And Elm has that similar feeling to me of just, it's just like, it just feels good to write. And the, the compiler is nice. The compiler's friendly. Um, the, comp- the error messages are, were, there's, it, there's a lot of effort on making the error messages friendly and actually useful. Yeah. The error messages almost always say like, this is what I saw. This is what I expected to see. This is probably what went wrong or where you should look. It's really handy. Yeah. I, it's really good. <laughs> I just, I love it. I, I really enjoy working in it. And the thing I would tell a lot of people is, it's a really great functional language to sort of move into if you've never done one before. Cause I made the, the comment at the very beginning that I like to call it Haskell without the academia and not as a dig or a, a you know, better or worse kind of thing. But Elm is a very, very much focused on making it a sort of out of the box experience productive build your web app. It's focused on building web apps. It's not like Evan, the creator, he keeps a a pretty good laser focus on making it useful to build web apps for right now. And you don't come into Elm and then suddenly there's all of this complexity in the language that is not focused on building web apps. So it's a great way to just come in, learn about writing functional code in a language that immediately is going to start having, um, you're going to start seeing results. Yeah. I think that's a really good way of putting it. It's a a very practical academic kind of language, if that makes sense. Like Mm -hmm. it it doesn't have a lot of times the pure functional languages do feel like they're designed for an abstract world that doesn't really exist, but Elm really does focus on trying to get DOM elements on a page. Like it's, yeah, and it's it's that idea that, say, you take a language like Haskell, there are lots of things you can use it for. Like, the Elm compiler is written in Haskell, so clearly compiling, you know, a compiler, right. you can write in it. There are web frameworks. There are this, you can do AI, you can do all of this stuff in it. Elm is basically for one thing, which is, like you said, it's getting DOM elements onto a page and then making Ajax requests back and forth. Like that's, that's pretty much what it is for. And it does it really well. And it's laser focused on making that an enjoyable and productive experience. So if you keep that in mind, it's a really fantastic way to come in and learn what it means to have like no side effects of, you know, a pure functions of immutable data, things like that. Cool. 
I think we're at time. That seems like a really good place to stop. Where can people reach you online if they want to say hi or ask you more questions about Elm? The best place is Twitter. I'm just Corey Haynes on Twitter. It seems like I'm paying attention to Twitter more often or more frequently than I should. I have a blog that I haven't written on for a couple of years um, at CoreyHaynes.com, but pretty much Twitter is the place to find me and reach out to me. Great. Well, Corey, thanks so much for being on the show. I'm really glad I got a chance to talk to you about this. Um, I've been having a lot of fun playing with it um, and trying to figure out places where I can use it in my day-to-day work too. Uh, and thanks for being on the show. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Tech Done Right is a production of Table XI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. You can find Table XI on Twitter at Table XI and me at Noel Rapp. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rep. Tech Done Right can be found at techdoneright.io or downloaded via wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at tablexi.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. And we still do have a software development position open that you can apply for at tablexi.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right. Tech Done Right.